0: Hey, good afternoon, everybody. Uh, thanks for joining our panel. We're going to talk about uh, leverage use by uh, closed-end funds. Uh, my name is Greg Favelevich. I head up the uh, funds uh, team in the U.S. for uh, Fitch Ratings. Uh, our group uh, assigns ratings to debt and preferred shares issued by closed-end funds. We also do some uh, some research around the space, and we've been doing this panel for uh, quite a few years. And we have a, a great panel this year. And I'll let the panelists introduce themselves.
1: Uh, Thanks, Greg. I'm Bill Myers. I work at uh, Naveen. I've worked there, uh, I guess, for a while, uh, about 27 years. Uh, I'm responsible for uh, working on the origination and issuance of new closed-end funds. Uh, In my role, I've also uh, worked on structuring and designing different forms uh, of leverage.
2: My name is John area I work for BNP Paribas. I run our structuring team there, which is uh, responsible for lending to uh, a multitude of closed-end funds uh, in various different products uh, to employ leverage.
3: My name is Adam Joseph, I'm at Wells Fargo. I head what uh, we call our capital strategies group within our municipal products area. And among other things, we um, structure and purchase uh, leverage products from, among other things, uh, funds run by Bill's company. Um, we all report to Bill somehow. Exactly. Right. <laughs> uh, I'll the res- we We'll mm-hmm. talk <laughs> afterwards.
0: Uh, great. So let's kick it off. Uh, so we'll, we'll start with a little bit of an overview of uh, leverage use in close-in funds. As uh, so you may know, close-in funds typically use leverage uh, you know, to boost uh, income to uh, to investors. And there are a number of um, a no- number of aspects that limit the, the use of leverage, primarily the, the 1940 Act that, that regulates um, the leverage ratios that uh, funds can have. Uh, and then to the extent uh, you know, the fund documentation um, also limits uh, leverage use it can be uh, at higher, higher or lower ratios than allowed under the 40 act. And of course, to the extent uh, leverage uh, such as debt or preferred is rated, there'll be uh, rating agency uh, limitations requirements around the testing. Uh, and the asset coverage and, and we'll go, get to some of that a little bit uh, later what you see on the slide here we just took um, this is all based on public financials and kind of reporting by closing funds so essentially we took um, the leverage ratios that the funds report or or we calculate them uh, for taxable funds and municipal funds and, and basically each dot that you see on the chart is leverage ratio of one fund uh, so you can essentially see how they're they're bunched up uh, taxable funds kind of around the 30% uh, leverage ratio. So kind of from mid 20s to mid 30s uh, percent and municipal f- closing funds typically uh, a bit higher in the high 30s and sometimes in the low 40s uh, and, and they'll have kind of bands that they manage uh, these ratios around to to keep uh, in line with with the risk management practices um, and yeah, so, so maybe we'll start with uh, Bill. If you can give kind of a quick overview of, you know, how do you manage the leverage at Nuveen funds, you know, overall, and then we'll, we'll get to taxable muni funds uh, specifically later.
1: Uh, uh, sure. Within, within these two uh, areas of the charts, uh, Nuveen is pretty well represented within each. Uh, what I can say is that Nuveen's leverage ratios for uh, the taxable funds, we, we generally have two tranches. Uh, that we target within the leverage. We have preferred and uh, and loan funds target uh, ratios uh, in the uh, upper 30s, so mid to upper 30s, and then for our other taxable products, we're in the upper uh, 20 percent range. Uh, What I can assure you, if you look closely enough at this chart, uh, we do not have that top uh, dot within the chart. So I think there was a CLO or something that snuck on here, but uh, but we generally target uh, leverage ratios that are, are in the 30% range for the taxables. Uh, on the muni side, as uh, indicated uh, by the chart, uh, they're a bit higher. And the muni funds uh, are generally sourced through preferred shares, which, as Greg noted, have uh, higher uh, leverage allowances under the 40 Act. So if, uh, if issuing preferred shares, you can uh, technically go up to about 50%. Uh, leverage on the taxable, uh, tax-exempt side or the preferred share side. So the munis uh, target uh, leverage ratios for Nuveen in the upper uh, 30% range. Uh, Nuveen, uh, unlike maybe some other sponsors, we uh, have certain target leverage ratios that we, we look to, uh, to manage around, and we Tend to not tactically leverage above or below. We just have a target that we seek to uh, comply with over time.
0: And thanks, Bill. And by the way, that is actually a U.S. close in fund. We um, won't uh, won't disclose here who it is. <laughs> uh, but uh, the, you know. It, the chart shows that you have the limitations imposed by the 40 Act, right? So, how can a fund go above that limit and quite significantly? So, uh, so there are certain uh, securities or certain forms of leverage that funds can use that allow them to go go around that uh, specific requirement of the 40 so Act. For example, derivatives are not counted uh, under those requirements, and uh, reverse repos aren't counted, and and tobs for, uh, uh, for 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 uh, uh, municipal closing end funds, uh, but. Um, uh, maybe turn to, turn to uh, Adam. Adam, so you buy some of the uh, preferred shares issued by uh, by some of these closing funds. Can you give us a bit of an overview of how you look at them? Sure.
3: Um, I mean, we look at them as a uh, a way to uh, get exposure to the mini market on a you know heavily collateralized basis. So, as Bill was saying, a typical leverage ratio in a muni fund might be between let's say 35 to 40 percent. Um, On top of the uh, uh, 40 Act leverage limitations, we also build in some other contractual limits that take into account, you know, things like TOB leverage or derivative leverage uh, just to make sure that we have uh, really have control over over all the leverage. Um, And so so in a typical fund, you know, you might have a a billion-dollar market value of assets uh, and total leverage of about, you know, again, let's say 40% which, we've, we, which we view as a very good risk proposition, you know, particularly relative to some other ways that we uh, fund other investors and munis. Um, in terms of um, trends that we're seeing in the market, uh, I would say starting about when we first started uh, buying preferred from Naveen funds and from other funds, the typical transaction would have a tenor of maybe three to five years. Um, and would be, let's say, based on the CIFMA index plus, you know, 100 to 125 basis points on a tax-exempt basis, which again, for a AAA uh, asset, uh, thanks to Greg, um, you know, is is a very attractive investment. Over time, I would say, starting really in earnest about 18 months ago, the funds themselves have come back to us and said, hey, uh, in exchange for shortening up the tenor from, let's say, three to five years to maybe a year can we give them a break on the spread? In other words, take it from 100 down to, you know, 70, 75, 80 basis points. Uh, and I think that the motivation being as the yield curve uh, has flattened, um, you know, the the, the the funds are getting squeezed a little bit, and they're looking to economize on spread. And we've generally been willing to accommodate that. I would say that the average life of our portfolio of preferred probably fell from, you know, probably three years to now closer to, you know, one and change. Um Uh, in exchange for less spread. So it it kind of benefits both of us in the sense that there's a bit less risk for both parties. I would say the other um, major trend that we've seen, which has been driven by tax reform, is um, one of the things that tax reform has done is cut down on the overall supply of bonds in the mini market, Uh, and yet you have a lot of, um, you know, kind of captive investors who only want tax-exempt income. So what it's done is taken a lot of long-term bond funds and SMAs who would normally be buying long-term bonds, new issue bonds, and forced them into the very short end of the market, thereby depressing the um, the, the short-term tax-exempt indices against which these uh, funds are structured. And so the SIFMA is is the main index, uh, typically. You would think it would be trading at around 70 to 75 percent of LIBOR. It's currently resetting at like 55 percent of LIBOR. So you can imagine uh, there's a lot of yield give up for the bank that's owning that paper. And so what we've been able to do, again, with most of our most of our our, our, our uh, closed-end fund companies, is to um, agree to uh, uh, convert a good chunk of our assets from a sifma based uh, uh, index to let's say a 70 or 75 percent of libor based index just to give us a little bit more of a hedge against technicals in the market so we're probably at about 50 50 cifmo libor so i'd say those are you know the two of the big trends um, a third one maybe I'll come back to later is the top funding we can c- kind of come back to that one.
0: Okay. Yeah. Uh, Adam, maybe just to follow up, in terms of kind of the way you look at it, uh, w- what's kind of most important for you? Is it the current portfolio? You know, is it uh, kind of high grade or high yield? Or is it the manager and quality and kind of the relationship you have or the covenants? What, what are some things you look well, at? Well,
3: we, we do, vi- I would say big picture, we are looking at it as a little bit of a hybrid um, proposition. Uh, we certainly like the investment as it stands on its own two legs from a risk-reward proposition. But there is also a, definitely a relationship aspect to it where we have huge trading relationships with Nuveen, you know, BlackRock, and Vesco, you know, all the major fund families. And we do view uh, this as, a, as having a relationship lending component to it that drives other business that we do, whether it's secondary market trading or underwriting of new funds. You know, it's definitely kind of in that relationship context. Um, I would say in terms of how we look at things from a credit perspective, we're definitely looking at the, you know, sort of mix of investment grade and non-investment grade in a typical fund. You know, they tend to go anywhere from, you know, 50-50 would be a a fairly aggressive portfolio. A more normal one might be, you know, 80-20, 70-30 in terms of uh, investment grade, non-investment grade. And then we also uh, look very carefully at the liquidity characteristics. Um, of the bond. Obviously, you know, we're always looking for um, what kind of maneuverability the portfolio manager would have in, in a crisis to, to delever.
1: So yeah, it's 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 somewhat easy to look at it bluntly and saying you have a uh, billion dollars of assets and, and $380 million of preferred, so the asset coverage is very strong. But again, it goes a step further. Uh, it looks at the nature of the assets, the rating of the assets, the liquidity, the diversification of the assets, so it's a it's a much more nuanced view that the counterparts do uh, when they evaluate leverage that they look to buy.
0: Yeah. And, John, you um, you also went to, to closing funds on taxable side. Maybe we'll, we'll cover kind of specifics of the margin loans um, in a bit. But maybe high level, can you give us an overview kind of similarly? Do you look at the type of portfolio, the manager, what are the parameters?
2: we've been in this market since uh, 2008 so i think when you saw the auction rate preferred market stall um you know we looked at the asset-based lending aspects of closed-end fund leverage and you know really drew parallels to a prime brokerage framework so this is you know very similar to what uh, adam was highlighting in terms of asset-level analysis in terms of haircuts, uh, you know, based on credit quality, based on uh, perceived liquidity under stress um, and, and other attributes. Uh, so we do look at it, you know, very much that way. We we take a great deal of comfort in the fact that, uh, you know, the 40 Act does dictate such, you know, high degrees of, uh, of coverage. Um, but I think that we've been very successful in not just looking at that as the, you know, defining factor, um, because I, I think that, uh, really getting into what the assets are and being able to mark them the market daily and, and having a good handle on, um, you know, what their attributes are, uh, is the framework of our analysis. Okay.
0: Right, quickly, uh, just on, uh, on ratings. So this is a snapshot of the, uh, the rated closing funds that, uh, fit rates. Um, you c- Main takeaways from here: You can see most of the exposure is really high, high grade. I mean, a lot of AAA uh, and AA exposure, um, kind of much less on the single A side. And I think that reflects some of the um, the comments that John and Adam made, where historically there's been, uh, from a from a creditor perspective, this has been a very uh, uh, strong performing asset class. I mean, as far as I am aware. Um, there's never been a default on data on preferred uh, share instrument uh, by a close-in fund, and certainly uh, s- as long as Fitch has rated them, uh, which is probably 15, 20-year uh, period. And so uh, high level, the way we look at them, uh, I think it's in a way similar to, to the way the other guys do. So we look at each of the assets in the portfolio, you know, whether it's equities or um, or, or loans or uh, or debt. Uh, we'll assess the liquidity of each one. We'll assign a haircut based on that. And essentially, you get to a discounted or a haircut uh, value of the portfolio that we, you know, which we think would be a reasonable estimate for uh, at what level you are able to actually liquidate the, the securities uh, if you need to delever, uh, And then you compare that to the level of, uh, of issued debt or preferred shares, and that's how you get to your, your ratings. And obviously, for, to get to a higher rating, we assign higher haircuts you know, for a lower uh, rating, uh, lower haircuts. Uh, essentially, that, that's how uh, it works. The structure has actually worked uh, very well through a number of crises. I mean, these funds have been through. Uh, you know the, the 2000 downturn 2008 and then the energy downturn uh, 2015 2016 where we've seen uh, MLP funds you know under quite a lot of stress uh, and they 've done what they were supposed to per their, their documentation and the, the structure they delevered um, and we can get into that uh, a little bit more detail uh, later, but essentially it's been proven to work so I think uh, institutionally for us is kind of a lot of support for, for this kind of structure. Um, all right. So Now uh, getting to a bit of the specifics. Uh, so what we're showing here is uh, the profile of leverage for taxable close on funds and goes back to the beginning of '8 and then through, through the last uh, through the end of uh, 2018, so about 10 years. Uh, so one of the clear things you see from the beginning um, I- initially these funds had quite a bit of auction rate securities that's uh, gone away for for a while. Uh, and then the remaining leverage now is primarily bank financing. And there's a good portion of preferred, uh, and there's a number of um, channels to distribute the preferred shares. So it's been uh, privately placed with insurance um, investors. There's some retail preferred, uh, and of course, um, uh, some bank preferred on more more on the Muni side. Uh, in terms of the uh, trends, so you see there's a dip there from 2014 or so. That's when MLP funds were, um, you know, were performing really well. The Added leverage, and then after the, the decline in the energy markets, uh, the, they delevered, as I mentioned. Uh, since then, there's, a, there's been a bit of an increase in leverage, and then over the last year or so, it's been fairly flat. Um, increases were primarily in a, in a bank channel, so repo and uh, either margin loans or credit facilities. Uh, we've seen some decrease in the uh, auction rates uh, securities. Another trend that's worth mentioning that we've observed from from our perspective uh, we've seen funds that have maybe historically over the last couple years have run with uh, leverage levels uh, that kind of uh, are close to the limitations of the 40 act Uh, so for example if they had a credit facility and they were running at at 31 or 32 percent effective leverage that's very close to the uh, regulatory limit of 33 percent and we've seen a number of transactions where Fund managers have uh, refinanced a portion of the uh, bank facility with preferred shares, and preferred shares are subject to a higher regulatory limit at 50%. So, if you have a balance of uh, more flexible bank bank facilities uh, and some uh, preferreds, that's a little bit longer term. There are other motivations for the transaction, but effectively it gives you a bit more of a cushion to manage your leverage ratio and won't force you to delever if markets uh, decline. Um, and John, maybe just back to you, could you describe in a bit more detail you know, how the, the margin loan uh, program works and the reverse repos that you guys do? Yeah.
2: Um, it's interesting just to, to follow up on, on one of your comments there in terms of the balancing. I think we have seen and just picking up on trends the balancing between term issuance and the use of a margin loan right a margin loan provides a very high degree of flexibility and so a difference between a margin loan and a repo is that a repo is largely a by appointment uh, financing arrangement where each asset you know has its own um, you know haircut and schedule and, and its own booking into a repo system which is a little bit more operationally cumbersome than having a broad-based facility in a margin loan. Uh, so, margin loan really provides. Uh, generally, for our clients, we typically write these at 179-day evergreens, so they're rolling. So, customers are comfortable that they have financing, uh, you know, for a set period of time. And every day you wake up, and this resets to you know another 179 days. Uh, and th- those facilities are designed to be um, portfolio facilities. So. Uh, There are collateral requirements that, you know, prescribe a AA-rated asset, you know, has a specific haircut, Um, so portfolio managers have a higher degree of visibility in terms of what fits neatly into that facility uh, as they want to increase or or decrease leverage. Uh, Again, that really comes down to um, somewhat of an ease of execution. One of the requirements for the 40-act funds is that their assets be custodied at a U.S. custodial bank. Um, so we have, you know, we operate in a platform where there's a segregated pool of collateral that, you know, stands as margin for the loan, um, and we have visibility into that. But portfolio managers can put collateral in there and know on a, you know, prescribed manner what their ultimate leverage is going to be based on the portfolio characteristics we agree upon, um, you know, at inception. Uh, the repo side, like I said, is, you um, a little bit more cumbersome. It is more asset specific, and it is more um, less of a facility and more of a you know kind of point to point financing. Uh, but we have seen an uptick in that as well. And I think you made reference, Greg, to uh, you know repos also in, in a in a way can sit outside of the 300% asset coverage test, uh, which can uh, allow for some enhanced leverage.
0: And Bill, from a uh, from portfolio management perspective, can you give us your, your side of how you, you know, how you look at the different types of leverage, how do you decide, you know, which ones to use? And
1: Sure. So um, I, I love this chart because it, it shows the, the changing nature of, uh, of leverage and what it's been through uh, this and, and actually the, the next chart. But, you know, the, the far left bar, it shows ARPs and the dominance of ARPs. And, uh, in this chart and the the next one indicate what happened in 2008 and really the behavior of the underlying asset classes on taxable funds and on munis. But you see the drop, uh, the sharp drop from 2008 to 2009. And what happened is there was a a lot of uh, payment uh, down of auction rate preferreds because there were asset coverage uh, breaches on the taxable side. So for uh, for closed-end funds that are designed and, uh, and created for payment of common stock dividends to their shareholders. If you want to keep paying common dividends, you need to keep the leverage on the, the right side of the 40X. So you see uh, a, a pretty big delevering early on in 2008 to 2009, so funds could continue paying dividends. Uh, but what we've seen is Really, uh, the, the retirement of the auction rates in large part, and as you move further to the right on the chart, just a variety of more flexible uh, forms of leverage. The ARPs were, were quite inflexible where you had certain notification periods to redeem uh, the leverage. You needed to uh, call it in and, and work with the SEC to put out certain notices to redeem shares. With uh, with margin facilities, for example, you can just pay it down with uh, with very minimal notice and you can move uh, the leverage pretty rapidly. So I think on, on this slide and the next one, it's really just a variety of forms of leverage that are much more flexible and compatible with managing the product in the new market.
0: And maybe th- just to piggyback on, uh, on Bill's point, um, you know, the f- Funds will have different strategies, and some, some will use kind of only bank facilities plus repos, or, or um, you know, you probably don't see as much just preferred. But uh, for the ones that use preferreds as a complement to, uh, to bank facilities or repos, typically the way they do it is um, they'll look at the bank facility as kind of the more flexible portion that they can move up and down, you know, as market conditions change, and the preferred portion— uh, or even maybe a bank term loan, as you know, termed out, and you know you don't have to um, you don't have to worry about that source of financing maybe for a couple of years. Um, and let's say during the the downturn in the energy market, we've seen MLP funds um, kind of really use that kind of full capital structure. So when they have to delever, they'll take down the bank facility first, as that was. More flexible; it's easy to put that up or down every day, um, and then you know the notes and the preferreds kind of later on as as market values continue uh, declining. All right. So moving on to uh, municipal side, um, more stable in terms of the you know the total amount of leverage you can see over the years, uh, but maybe a bit more dislocation in terms of the types of uh, leverage that uh, the bill is referring to. Uh, again, I'll, I'll let Bill talk about that a bit more. Uh, but we've seen kind of new products come to market. You see every couple of years there's a new product, usually the brainchild of, uh, of Bill and his associates. Um, and kind of the latest we've seen is the uh, MFPs, the Municipal f- uh, Fund Preferred. And essentially the MFPs are a bit of a hybrid. And t- typically they'll have longer maturity, but then they can take uh, the form of almost one of the other Uh, Types of leverage so either VMTP or VRDP and again, I'll let Bill cover that a bit more Uh, but we've seen um, We've seen those type of uh, preferred shares refinance some of the uh, the ones that were launched a couple years um, earlier as everybody is optimizing, you know, the the form uh, form of these uh, securities Um, And We continue to see the auction rate securities that remain uh, you know, go down. We've seen a bit more activity in 2018 with, uh, with quite a few funds refinancing uh, the the auction rate securities that they had. And again, I'll t- I'll talk about that a little bit later about uh, in terms of cost. But um, maybe turning, um, let me turn to to Adam first. Adam, can you give us um, kind of high level overview of some of the differences between the different uh, forms of leverage in the muni space?
3: Sure. <coughs> I mean, I would say the broad history would be. Uh, you know, auction rate preferred was the go-to product for a long time. And then in 2008, 2009, uh, the auction rates all failed. I mean, it was had nothing to do with the with the credit quality of the underlying funds. You know, municipal auction rate uh, securities, that market failed. Municipal, I'm sorry, auction rate preferred failed. It was really a problem with the mechanism more than the underlying quality. <clears throat> and as many of you are probably aware, Uh, There were um, settlements with the various attorney generals across the uh, United States that uh, resulted in the dealers of those securities purchasing them back largely from retail investors who had bought them thinking that they were always convertible to cash, Uh, and the the dealers had to buy them back at, at par. And in many cases, you know we're marking them down simultaneously to seventy or eighty cents on the dollar and and obviously, that caused a tremendous amount of strain um, on 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 the dealers um, and also you know created a need to to find some more viable structure to finance these funds because clearly uh, it was bad enough that that market had failed, but clearly no one was ever going to buy any more of it so uh, Naveen was, was, was really a, a pioneer in terms of coming up with the first alternative to uh, auction rate preferred, which was called Variable Rate Demand Preferred, or VRDP, which uh, was just basically a, a bank letter of credit, ba- I'm speaking a little bit loosely here, um, a bank letter of credit-backed uh, seven-day putable security that was really uh, designed to be purchased by money market funds. And it was very similar to a municipal bond-type product. Had to be uh, tweaked a little bit for certain tax reasons. Uh, And basically, there was a a wave of refinancings of auction rate preferred with variable rate demand preferred. And that was really the first kind of wave of of refinancings. Um, After that, um, uh, starting like in 2011 maybe, uh, Bill and I and, and a couple lawyers actually worked on uh, the first variable muni term preferred uh, deal, which was basically the same tax structure, uh, but rather than a bank providing a letter of credit to support floaters sold to money funds, the bank just bought the paper for its own account. And that was what I was saying was kind of like the three to five year term, uh, formula coupon, you know, CIFMA plus 100, something like that. Um, and that was kind of the second wave of um, of product that came out. I would say up until recently, VMTP uh, was probably the dominant product. But I think with, but because it is a bank-owned product, and because it's tax exempt, it took a little bit of a hit. Um, from tax reform, which just makes holding tax-exempt assets a little bit less attractive for banks, because it cuts the because the corporate tax rate. All of us in the room, from a personal perspective, got a small tax cut, um, but corporations got a massive tax cut, which is actually bad for us as tax-exempt investors. So, um, a- as the demand for bank-owned product um, waned a little bit. Uh, The the, the next wave of products is, uh, I think uh, Greg was referring to, what I would call kind of a a bit of a hybrid product, or or, or sometimes in the muni market, we might call it a VRO, a variable rate obligation, where you go out with a long-term maturity, no bank enhancement at all. Um, uh, You set a rate every seven days or 30 days or so, uh, and as long as investors want to hold it at that rate, they do. If they don't want to hold it anymore, then basically the rate flexes out the, the, the put period flexes out to thirty days or sixty days or three hundred and sixty five days it flexes out to a longer period at a higher rate, giving um, the, the fund some time to figure out how to restructure it and I, and I would think that that as bill and and other folks in his seat look at that product they're kind of balancing out the l- probably the lower expected cost of that product over short periods of time against the fact that it's just not as committed funding as going to a bank and selling VMTP for, you know, a year or two or three years. But, you know, it's certainly part of the mix. It makes sense. Um, I would say the only other thing that um, I I wanted to mention from before was, uh, again, a lot of the assets that we still hold, the variable mini term preferred, uh, assets that we hold, which are cifma based you know, they're, they're, they're a tricky asset because is bouncing all over the place and has had a tendency over the last year or two to be very rich and very unattractive to us as an investor, is um, there have been various uh, attempts over the years to fund those positions in what are called tender option bond programs, which are just single asset securitizations um, that a bank can use to access SIFMA funding. The point being, we don't really care where SIFMA is if we're both earning it and paying it at the same time. It allows us to just focus on clipping the spread. Uh, there have been some idiosyncratic issues about uh, about, ter- about um, auction rate. I'm sorry about uh, tax exempt preferred that have made it somewhat difficult to top fund. They're kind of some inside baseball tax issues, but I think the market is taking another run at it, and there's a couple of structures out there that uh, I think are going to get tested the next few months, um, different forms of credit enhancement and also possibly going without credit enhancement to uh, longer term investors. So uh, again, I think that could be another, um, another thing that, that could lead. Banks to be able to charge lower spreads against SIFMA and maybe take a little bit of air out of some of these other products. But again, it's always a dynamic mix. Uh, I would think, as you know, from the perspective of a fund manager or of a of a of a of a, of a fund treasurer, if you will, you want some mix and you want to have um, exposure to different investors and diversify your investor base and, and diversify your structures.
1: Yeah, I, I think this is being recorded, so I think I heard you mentioning <laughs> lower a lower spreads. spread to SIFMA in the future. <laughs> he so. said. It. Um, so anyway, maybe, maybe I'll, I'll just comment briefly about uh, the, the nature of uh, preferred. I think there's been a whole lot of changes in the market over the last several years going back to 2008. We've had just the, the, the rush to refinance auction rates to try to find more stable, cost-effective forms of uh, leverage for the funds. At Nuveen, uh, we we really like leverage. We think it adds a ton of value to the closed-end product and uh, the typically persistent uh, slope in the yield curve. We think that's something that uh, makes a, a lot of sense for the funds to exploit. So with that, we need to stay ahead of these changes in the market, the regulatory changes, the bank changes. Uh, changes in in money market uh, funds and demands. We talked a little bit about VRDP. That was a product designed and sold exclusively to tax-exempt money market funds. When we created it, there was about $500 billion in tax-exempt money fund assets. I think recently it's around $140 billion. So it's a much smaller market. So we've needed to stay ahead of the demand and try to find different sources where we can sell the leverage to that are, are cost-effective for the funds.
0: <coughs> Thanks, Bill. That's a, a good segue. Our next slide, uh, it just shows the uh, the actual issuance in mini mun- space. Um, you can see there the, the MFPs uh, had a big year in 2018. Maybe we'll just keep going um, since we're running a little bit behind. Uh, talking about costs, um, I think we covered that a bit on the municipal side. Phil, so is there anything else you think worth adding there?
1: I, I, just to maybe add on to what uh, Adam mentioned about the MFPs. So the, um, they're, they're not uh, bought by banks and they, uh, they don't have liquidity support. So it's, uh, it's a means by which uh, closed-end funds can sell to a market beyond the tax-exempt money market funds. So the tax-exempt money market funds require a putable security back to a bank Uh, with MFP, we don't have to pay uh, the bank the liquidity charge, so uh, we're able to place it more uh, cost-effectively. It comes with a risk, so you need to think about that risk and the risk that uh, it extends out like Adam mentioned.
0: Okay. And then on a taxable side, you um, could see more more differentiations. Uh, there's got a lot more, more term securities, particularly we've seen a bit more issuance of perpetual preferred again, uh, which is kind of similar in that respect to the, uh, the auction rate securities. Uh, usually it goes to uh, to retail investors now, but there's no uh, no kind of built-in liquidity mechanism. They're usually uh, traded on exchanges, so you're kind of taking the risk there of a discount similar to what you see in uh, close of fund common. Um, Bill, anything worth mentioning there?
1: Yeah, Nuveen tends to stay toward the left part of the chart. So, uh, so the majority of our five billion or so in taxable leverage is, uh, is through uh, either a bank uh, letter, a cr- line of credit, or through margin facilities, and then we layer on some of the other forms of leverage uh, on top of that to provide a little more flexibility. But. Um, But we, again, we try to minimize the ongoing cost of the leverage and balance the risks of it.
0: And, John, I think you'll be able to talk about uh, the first two, of the bank facilities and reverse repos. But I'll turn to this slide and we can do it here. So we're just showing um, kind of the top bank providers. And BNP has been there for quite a few years at the top. Uh, really, as far as I can remember, is uh, the, the few banks right right below have also been there for some time, and then we've seen some changes, you know, on the bottom uh, end of the list, you know, with, with banks coming in or, or out of the sector. But, um, John, would you mind... Give it a bit of an overview there, and kind of how you um, how you see costs
2: in in that sector. I'm just happy to see the slide. I kind of <laughs> like that one. That's
1: uh, you provided this. Slide. I did
2: <laughs> make the slide myself. Uh, um, look, BNP has been uh, you know in this space since the stall of the auction rate preferreds, and it's uh, these are good loans, right? They they have great uh, large asset management counterparties. Um, I think Adam made reference to the fact that you know in, in, in many t- situations these are good relationship loans as well, and I think the bank feels very comfortable about you know our. our Coverage there. What's been really important to us over the years, and and has been an emphasis of of my team and of our platform overall, has been maintaining stability of cost for uh, you know for our clients, and that's that's difficult. Um, We've all been through uh, you know different challenges in terms of uh, fundings and and costs and regulations and what everything means. Um, But our focus has always been, and there's a reason we've been on the top of that chart, is that we focus on stability. Um, you know, that stability, you know, means that we, you know, tend to be there for the long term, you know, for our clients. And that means both on the borrow from a balance sheet perspective, as well as a cost maintenance. So when we talk about margin loans, we talk about asset-specific, um, you know, recognition and, and looking at what they are. The, the greatest variance that you see is on easy-to-fund assets versus hard-to-fund assets, right? So when you look at a equity portfolio. Equities are, you know, the most liquid of financeable assets for banks. Um, And that, you know, tends to Uh, certainly be the simplest to do. What we've seen over the years is that closed-end funds and, and, you know, everybody's need for incremental yield, uh, you've seen a bit of a a migration toward more of the, um, you know, high-yield collateral. You've seen more of the preferreds, uh, and now you're starting to see, or you've seen over the last several years, a lot more loan activity in in these books. Those are harder to finance assets. Um, So... It, it's good to see on, on the preceding chart that there's a band um, and I know that your chart incorporated changes in LIBOR as well so it's not as uh, as, as moving as one might think um, but you know when you look at it from one to four percent and think about their you know recent rate rises um, I think that's pretty consistent we've done that through you know really balancing our funding sources um, that's certainly been uh, a focus and I think that when you look at the portfolios, um, on an asset-specific level, it allows you to provide pricing that you know, we know we can lock in you know for a long term. Um, and so that, that's why you see that degree of consistency there. Repo, as we talked about, um, is a little bit more by appointment, so that's why I think you see a little bit more of that variability. Uh, traditionally, repo can accommodate some of the harder-to-finance assets, a bit better than the margin loan can.
0: And uh, there's quite a, a big range there as well because of currency. So in the low end, correct. you'll see some euros.
2: So that's been, um yeah, but repo is, is, you know, a prevailing conversation around how, you know, you can do things differently. Um, but really in, in the floating bank, you know, side, the left side of that chart, um, you know, that consistency is born out of, I think, a granular review of what these assets are and a, you know, real understanding and provisioning for stable funding. Um, you know, Bill and others and you know, have, have worked with us consistently over the years in terms of things that bank needs, things that banks need in terms of, you know, new regulations, whether it's Basel II or otherwise. Certain things that we can put into our documents and certain ways that we can structure loans uh, allow us to be um, you know more price competitive. Um, and I think that again lends itself to the long term long term stability that uh, that's important to us and, and our clients.
1: And, and you've seen that through our, our deals with, with you and other lenders as well as uh, Adam and other uh, purchasers. I think we look at it as a long-term uh, integral component of the funds and we want to view it even though it, it needs to be renewed, uh, we look at it as a, a permanent uh, source of financing for the funds. So you, you have good long-term relationships and as long as the financing is competitive, you'll make the board uh, happy that uh, you're getting cost-effective financing, and it's pretty
0: permanent. And we're, uh, we're out of time, so I'll, um, I'll just flip to, uh, we have a couple of slides in the back just listing the different forms of leverage. I'm not going to go through it, but um, if anybody wants a copy of the, the slides, just let me know. I'm happy to provide them. I, I think we have a couple of copies as well. But uh, I want to take thank the, uh, the panel and, uh, and uh, wish you a good remaining conference. Thank you.